welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name is Brent. And this episode, we're talking about the Black Flag album Family Man, SST26. And this is yet another interesting release. It's very, very different. You said uh, it wrong, Ryan. What did I say? You're supposed to say, this week we're talking about Family Man. Family <laughs> Man. <laughs> Well, we'll may, we'll get into that in a minute, I guess. Yeah. But before we get into the release itself, um, Brent, I don't have any spiels. At I the do. Top. We might have to get a hold of Mike Watt and get him to record a thing for us that says "spiels." <laughs> <laughs> That'd be cool. Yeah. Or no, he could be "spiel it for the dudes." Yeah. I got a couple hot tips for you. Is what I have. Okay. Have you okay. checked out? What made me think of this is it's kind of like a little bit like what we're going to be talking about tonight. Uh, have you seen any anything online about this new band that Brendan Canty and Joe Lally have called Mesthetics? Yeah, Mesthetics. Mesthetics. Is that it? They've released one song so far, and it's good. I know, and it, it's too bad it, it kind of came out after I made that uh, Farrakat order from Discord. Yeah, I don't think it's out until... A couple for a couple of months, but it it's it sounds like it's going to be good. And it, it the reason I'm bringing it up is because at least the track they released so far is instrumental, which is relevant to what we're going to be talking about here tonight. Yeah, definitely. I did write down down the name of the other guy in the band. It's Anthony Pirog. I don't know too much about him, but apparently he's a well known guy around DC and quite the shredder. And it's Mesthetics, something like that. Yeah, it's on Discord. I'm just trying to remember how to how to pronounce it. I'm I did see it. I think I'm pretty you're, sure. I think you're right. When I've been reading it, it's been Mesthetics. I checked out some of Joe Lally's solo records after Fugazi. They're okay. Did you ever check out Brand Brendan Canty's band Death Fix? I think so. It sounds yeah, familiar. On they're on Discord as well. Probably my favorite post Fugazi band is still the one with Ian in it called The Evens. I like that band a lot. Yeah. Hey, and the other thing I was going to mention is I noticed on one of the like Facebook groups or whatever that you were having a conversation or somebody posted something about that album Fantastic Planet by a band called Failure, and you had commented oh, on it. That's uh, one of my like Desert Island albums. I didn't know you liked that one. I like it a lot too, and I was going to mention, if you remember on the face, uh, St. Vitus episode, I was telling you about that Decibel magazine and their Hall of Fame. Oh, yeah, right. Where they interview, like, the the rule is they have to have everybody from the band has to participate, or who everyone who uh, was on that particular album has to participate or they can't induct it into the Hall of Fame. Remind me again, is that a, is that a Doom magazine or is that just, like, a metal or rock magazine? It's a metal magazine, but they do stuff like, uh, for example... I think I told you at the time, uh, End of Silence has been one of the albums, and right. Je Jesus Lizard Goat. Um, I'm pretty sure they did Stoner Witch by the Melvins, either that or Houdini, but I think it was Stoner Witch. Uh, they did Unsane, uh, Scattered, Smothered, and Covered, and they did that Failure album. What did they say about it? Well, I mean... It's in the Hall well, of Fame, it was, so it's... It was inducted into the Hall of Fame. Yeah, oh, I got gotcha. you. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a really interesting record. They've they've got a number of 
albums and they actually just put out a new one last year or the year before which is also really excellent the lead singer uh his name escapes me but the main guy he also had a band called year of the rabbit which is another really good band but their their stuff is really hard to find but uh failure fantastic planet was like and i guess it kind of still is like a cult hit it's it's really well known but no one knows about it like kind of in the uh the music musicians and heavy musicians especially 90s focused musicians um but I, that was probably on um that noise rock now page that i'm on and they people were gushing about that one for a day rightly so that's all i have right on those are two good hot tips yeah <laughs> well should we uh get into family man do you want the family man or do you want the swinging man ryan you choose family man you get the family man history lesson part one before we get into a bit of the background on this record i think i alluded to the fact that this was one of the very first full length black flag albums that i ever got i had kind of songs off of the first four years and some of those early singles on some compilation tapes. But this is the first full-length Black Flag album I ever bought, and the reason I got it is because back in my hometown, to buy a Black Flag, even a cassette, was like 20 bucks new, right? And the CDs were 8 bucks more, but Family Man would show up now and then in the used bin. I believe that. Yeah, and so I bought Family Man, and and I'm a I'm an early teenager when I bought Family Man. I listened to it back then and I think I kind of I was like, Oh yeah, I can see why this was put in the used bin. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure I have in the last, I don't know, twenty some years, I've probably traded it away and rebought it twice at least. It's definitely not one of my favorites. I did really like the excuse of re-listening to it again for the podcast though and we'll get into that in a bit but why don't you um why don't you tell us a bit about family man okay well i'm going to start by telling you uh where things were at at in uh sst world in 1984 because i found some good stuff on that and uh this comes from joe carducci i found a quote by him where he he says greg did not think that sst was good enough for black flag and uh, in early 84, Greg tried to give SST to Joe and Mugger in exchange for helping him set up a black flag label called Nixon Records with Chuck. And uh, Joe said, no, a flag is uh, off SST, I'm out. So this is the start of like the division, I think, when Greg is, or uh, sorry, Chuck is doing, he's running global booking and they're in a separate building. And him and Chuck and Greg, even though, you know, everything that happened with with Chuck leaving the band, leaving Black Flag, it sounds like him and Greg stayed pretty tight. Mugger, at this point, is has said, I'm, I'm not touring with Black Flag anymore. And he's taking night classes to become an accountant. By all accounts, a pretty, a really, really bright guy, really loyal, and was good friends, I think, with Greg. And Greg didn't want to lose him. So he offered him a quarter of SST to stay on with them. And the deal was that Mugger would, would stay in the office. So based on you know everything you read about it, it sounds like 
you know, well, for 1984, Black Flag's going to be on the road pretty well the whole year. But you've got Greg and Chuck kind of in the global building office, I should say, and Mugger and Joe Carducci kind of running SST from a separate office. And it sounds like the, the, the cracks are starting to, to form. I think one of the reasons maybe there started to be cracks is here's another story I found uh, about Gary Tovar. Do you know who he is? I don't. The story goes that he put on a show in Santa Barbara with uh, Black Flag, Adolescence, Channel 3, and Overkill. And the uh, Pettibone Flyer was described as a particularly sick rape and mutilation scene. I don't know which one it was, but you can imagine. There's, there's a lot of them. Yeah. This Gary Tovar guy faced a lot of pressure to like cancel the show and, and take the flyers down, which, of course, was impossible. You can't take down a black flag flyer, right? They're put up with wheat paste, wheat paste and Elmer's glue. And so they liked this guy because he had balls, basically, because he went on with the show under immense pressure. And they started booking shows with him. He started this Golden Voice, which ended up becoming a huge booking agency. He ended up going to prison years later for, I think, like trafficking marijuana. But he was, I'm, I'm assuming he smoked a lot of pot, but he had a lot of pot around. And the story Joe tells is that this Gary Tovar wanted to seal the deal, as he calls it, with Chuck and Greg by having them go camping with him. And Greg is like begging Joe Carducci and Mugger to go because he's scared that he's going to smoke pot on this camping trip. <laughs> and Joe, uh, this is a quote from Joe Carducci in, in his book. He says, like I wanted that job. They went, Greg got high and never came down. So this is the start of, you know, Henry Rollins talks about Greg Ginn walking around with a big briefcase full of like a pound of weed from now yeah. on. Like he's, He's what they call perma-stoned. And there's another quote I read in American Hardcore where he says, and I mean, take whatever that guy writes with a grain of salt because he says some things that, that are questionable for sure. But he says, no one, not even bad brains, smoked more herb than Black Flag. By 1984, they were burning an ounce or two a week, which was a fringe benefit of working with Golden Voice promoter Gary Tovar. So... We're starting to see some divisions and some paranoia creep into the into SST at this point. In Black Flag world, like I said, they're going to tour for most of the year. This is also Kira's first release with the band. Her first show with Black Flag was at a party in Torrance on December 29th, 1983. So she's brand new to the band in 1984. We've already kind of discussed... You know, their practice schedule. So they're off to the races now, or uh, as Greg Ginn put it at the time, going into attack phase. So My War, as we've already discussed, came out in 1984. This one's going to come out in September of 84. And before the year is up, they're also going to release Slip It In and uh, Live in 84. So four releases in 1984. And didn't they record Slip It In before the Family Man tracks? Am I right on that? You could be right. It sounds right, because if this didn't come out until September, you know, that doesn't give them very much time to record Slip It In. 
Yeah, I seem to recall reading in Stevie Chick's book, Spray Paint the Walls, that they recorded, like, Slip It In was kind of the first session with Kira, and then Family Man came on later on once Henry started, you know, doing those talking shows, right? Here's a, a quote I found from Joe Carducci in Spray Paint the Walls that kind of talks about the flood of releases. So this isn't Joe, this is the author. He says, this tidal wave of releases was how Greg Ginn planned it, and doubtless exactly how Greg Ginn wanted it, and the concerns of his audience, as ever, didn't really enter the equation. And here's, here's Joe. Once Black Flag was free of the injunction, they released four records in one year. That didn't help them in the marketplace, and I mentioned that to Greg, but he didn't care. I think he wanted to get it all out there and wrap it up. He didn't tell me that, but in retrospect, I think that was what he was trying to do. I think also he felt that unless you were on a major label, you really couldn't do a proper job of marketing a group. So you might as well throw it all against the wall and let it sell what it would sell. Right. And that injunction, we've mentioned that before, but that's the unicorn lawsuit against the damaged album. Yeah. It's pretty well known that like once that injunction was out of the way, they just went, it was like a tidal wave of Black Flag and then SST releases in 1984. Yeah. Now, what about Kira? I was reading that, you know, she was kind of part of the L.A. punk scene, and her brother, Paul Rossler, was in another famous band called The Screamers, right? Yeah, he was in The Screamers, and I think he's going to be in DC3. For a moment, anyways, and he has a solo album way later on on SST as well that we'll get to eventually. Kira played in some bands. Uh, I have one record uh, by a band she was in called Twisted Roots. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What are they? I, I, You know what? I've read about them. What do they sound like? Uh, I don't know. Like early L.A. punk, I guess. It's not very memorable, to be honest with you. Hmm. Well, I will say, I mentioned during the My War episode that, you know, Dale Nixon, a.k.a. Greg Ginn, yeah. the bass player on My War is nothing special, especially on... Family Man, and I was saying, you know, I really appreciate the excuse to re-listen to Family Man because I haven't listened to it for, I bet you, 10 years. I haven't listened to it. I'm still, we'll get to it. I'm not a huge fan of the spoken word stuff. I'm now appreciating the instrumental stuff a lot more. And I've mentioned this before, like, Kira and Bill really lock in as a unit. But on these instrumental tracks, Kira is holding it down. Oh, yeah. It's like she's on a loop. An absolute machine. And yeah. you think they're playing to a click track? No way. No. And I mean, by all accounts, she never flubbed a note live. Never. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's insane. I was listening to some of the tracks. We'll talk about them in a minute. And I'm going, oh, my God. You know, Bill and Greg are on another planet. And Kira is still right there. Yeah. Rock solid. It's a, you know, so an impressive player. And I, I will say, too, I mean, I didn't really actually appreciate her ability until I started listening to uh, Dose, that duo with Mike Watt. Yeah. Because um, there's both of this playing is very cool on there. But when you listen to those records, you can tell who Kira is. And it's, it's very neat stuff. Yeah, they were playing the odd instrumental uh, set in early 84. Like shows without Henry. And by this point, they're opening with an instrumental. 
I've got some bootlegs from this era, era and they often opened with the song The Process of Weeding Out, which is on the live album that we're going to get to in a couple weeks. I Won't Stick Any of You, unless or until I Stick All of You, I think is the full title. It's on Family Man. Yeah. That's in the middle of the set, and which is also on the Live in 84. They were playing those two songs fairly regularly. Yeah, and that must have been really hard for the audience to take. I can only imagine. Yeah. We should talk about side one because this is really the start of Henry Rollins' spoken word, or I call it spoken word, most of us do. He calls them talking shows, but this is really the start of that. And you can find a lot of really great information about kind of how he got his start doing it. I would recommend the Henry and Heidi podcast, which is Henry and I believe she's his manager, Heidi May. They have a podcast called uh, Henry and Heidi, which unfortunately only comes out every eight months, it seems like. But there's a really good one about how he got his start doing these talking shows. He tells the story a zillion times better than I ever could, but I'll kind of recap. He's going to these uh, to these shows at like smaller clubs and cafes around Hollywood in L.A. Uh, with Chuck Dukowski, or he goes to one with Chuck Dukowski on a whim because Chuck Dukowski's doing readings at these things. And this guy, uh, Harvey Kubernick, who ha- does the liner notes to this album, and I believe the blasting concept, and uh, if I'm remembering right, Abe, Abe Gibson mentioned him in the, in the interview, uh, would go on to maybe be involved a little bit in curating some of the artists that ended up doing spoken word stuff on New Alliance. He's organizing these shows, and it's people like uh, Jeffrey Lee Pierce, Exene Cervanka, Mike Watt, Charles Bukowski, Dave Alvin, Chris D. from uh, Flesh Eaters, D. Boone, Joe Nolte, Rodney Bingenheimer, Lydia Lunch. These kind of people, Chuck Dukowski, are doing these spoken word shows, and Henry Rollins goes along with Chuck Dukowski, and this Harvey Kubernick says, you should get up there and read something. And Henry goes, oh, I can't do that. And and, uh, Harvey Kubernick says, it's 10 bucks for 10 minutes. And uh, Henry's up on that stage pretty quick after that. And he tells a story about a black flag practice. They had briefly had a practice space at the end of 82 going into 83 in like a really sketchy neighborhood that was controlled by these two gangs, like a Latino gang. These gangs are just like walking into the practice space and watching Black Flag practice because, you know, they own the neighborhood, right? And Greg leaves the practice space to go to 7-Eleven to get something to drink or whatever, and a carload full of, like, neo-Nazis tries to run him over because they're pissed off because Black Flag's hanging out with with uh, a Latino gang or something like that. Henry tells that story on stage. It goes over so well that everyone's like, when's your next show? When's your next show? And it just starts from there. And he starts doing more shows like that to the point where uh, he says in the podcast, by 1985, as soon as the Loose Nut Tour ends, he rents the Black Flag van off of Black Flag and goes right back out on his own again to do a spoken word tour. He gets his own P.O. box. And at the end of that 85 tour, he has a tape that he puts out called Short Walk on a Long Pier, uh, which was mixed by Ethan James. And it's a really cool tape if you listen. It doesn't sound anything like what you know now 
as Henry Rollins, it sounds more like this, like this A side of Family Man. And it's not like his anecdotal funny stories, you know? There's a lot of like overdubs on it, and he's got like Roland S. Howard from uh, The Birthday Party plays on it a little bit, and Chris Haskett, who I think he kind of grew up with in DC, he's going to be in the Rollins band, he plays on it a little bit. So that's kind of the start of that, and then he puts a puts a book out, because he's writing like crazy by this point, because he's really getting into it, he's writing more lyrics, he's, people are really encouraging, encouraging him, he's like meeting a lot of like, quote, hipper people in this, in this poetry scene, or whatever you want to call it. He's, he releases his first book, which was probably inspired by Raymond Pettibone, I think, because he's it's kind of self-published, but he calls it his uh, book company or his publishing com company, 21361, which is the start of that, which he still releases his books on today. And he did release books by other people like Exe and Cervenka and Jeffrey Lee Pierce. Rock and the Pop Narcotic is on that yeah. imprint. Yeah, uh, Joe Cole has a book on it. So yeah. that's the start of that, and he's selling that from the merch table. And this is also, I think, the start of real troubles in Black Flag. Henry's getting lots of attention. He's getting interviewed a lot. They're getting calls at SST from people that want to book Henry, which he says in this podcast, a member in Black Flag had a huge problem with. <laughs> Any guesses can't on imagine. which member that might be? Yeah, can't imagine. Yeah. But before you before you move on, just on the uh, the Harvey Kubernick and the talking shows too, like pre Family Man spoken word stuff. Co Harvey Kubernick did put out a couple of comps. At least one of them is before this one called English as a Second Language. Yeah, I've heard it. Yeah, it's a double LP. It's got a Raymond Pettibone artwork on the front. It's put out on Freeway Records. And it's got a ton of, it's got like probably close to 50 spoken word tracks. But of course, you mentioned Rollins. There's a bunch of people on here. Um, he also put out, I guess, kind of a sequel to English as a Second Language called Neighborhood Rhythms. And it's called, uh, in parentheses, Neighborhood Rhythms Patter Traffic. That one came out, well, sorry, I should say English as a Second Language came out in 83, I think. And then um, this one looks like it came out in 84, but another double LP of spoken word. And so the first first six tracks on this one, is it goes Henry Rollins, Chuck Dukowski, Mike Watt, Chuck Dukowski, D. Boone, Chuck Dukowski. That's the first six tracks on here, spoken word. They put out a fair amount of stuff. They put out uh, Exene Cervenka, Wanda Coleman, uh, spoken word thing, uh, Charles Bukowski, they put out that Black Flag 12-inch that you have called Keep It in the Family. That's on Freeway Records. Right, that's a promo, yeah. Yeah, and they co-released this album. If you look at uh, the SST logo on the back, it says a Freeway SST production. Yeah, that Black Flag 12-inch, Keep It in the Family, it's kind of a promo 12-inch of Family Man and Slip It In. It's got Slip It In, the song Slip It In, the song Family Man, and then it's got the intro, I Won't Stick Any of You Unless and Until I Can Stick All of You. It does have artwork, though, on the front that does not appear on either one of those releases. It says, 
the song plus the instrumental plus the spoken word on the cover. It's kind of a neat 12-inch. And it's a Freeway SST production. I found uh, an interesting story in Enter Naomi about one of the tracks on this release. I think it's uh, her name's listed on the back of the album. Deirdre O'Donoghue. Family Man appears courtesy of KCRW 89.9 FM. Deirdre O'Donoghue Snap Program. Yep. Yeah, this is in Enter, Enter Naomi. Kubernick brought her uh, Henry to her show. He uh, performed Family Man, which is where this recording came comes from, and she loved it. And she ended up getting a bunch of more SST artists to come on and, and do the same thing. Apparently, there was a video shot of it at the same time by this guy Randy Jason, and uh, Joe Carducci thinks they did two other videos at that time. And he says this Randy guy also made three minute Minutemen videos, a flag video. And he parlayed that into writing uh, the Doors script for Oliver Stone. <laughs> wow. Interesting little factoid there. Yeah. Well, speaking of the Doors, I seem to recall reading something about, you know, when you're talking about how Henry was kind of getting famous on his own. There was some chatter back then about him being kind of like a Jim Morrison type figure, right? In the punk scene. Yeah. Well, I and think I the hair probably didn't help i think a lot of well i don't know if a lot but i seem to recall there there being some commentary about how you know there was a lot of henry rollins ego and part of that was um i get i guess that probably added fuel to the fire of the people who say that henry ruined black flag he definitely did not like the comparison no of course not i read some stuff in get in the van where he's kind of <laughs> ranting about it. He's not happy about it. Uh, his first uh, planned sh Harvey Kubernick show was on November 25th, 1983. Yeah, well, that kind of tracks with uh, the timing of that first spoken word double LP. I was thinking about that Freeway Records. In a way, it's kind of a precursor to what Greg Ginn would turn New Alliance into. Exactly, yeah. And are you familiar with the record label Infinite Zero? Do you have any of that stuff? Oh, it sounds familiar, but I, I don't. I don't recall anything specifically. Why should I know about it? Well, it's a it's a label that Henry Rollins and Rick Rubin started in the '90s. It didn't last very long. It's, it was solely a reissue label. They put out stuff by like uh, Gang of Four, Devo, but tons of well, not tons, but a fair amount of spoken word stuff as well. Did he put out some uh, Jeffrey Lee Pierce stuff? Mm, I think that was on two thirteen sixty one. Okay. Yeah. This is, um, yeah, it's all, it's strictly reissues, but there's like an Iceberg Slim album, for example. You know him? Nope. He's, he wrote a famous book called Pimp in the 70s about being a pimp. He was a pimp. <laughs> Stuff like that. What's the label called again? Infinite Zero. Yeah, yeah, okay. I'm just, I'm looking at this. There's Infinite Zero released... A lot of records that I have, I'm, I don't think I have Infinite Zero releases of yeah. it, though. Evo, Gang of Four, Contortions, like the James White Band, which I really like still. Yeah. Flipper. Oh, there's Iceberg Slim. That Monks album, Black Monk Time, they have that. Which is that? Oh, like that Garage Band? Yeah. They released that? Yeah. A version of that? Yep. Didn't that just get re-released re, -re -re -released again? Oh, there's probably 50 releases of that one. 
Is it any good? Yeah, it's good. Yep. They've got like the literal monk haircuts too for that album cover, oh, right? Yeah. yeah, you bet. Fuck, that's crazy. Anyways. Should we so talk brand- about the actual album? Yeah, let's talk about the release itself. History Lesson Part 2. You want to talk about like the tracks? Sure. I'm going to preface this by saying anything negative I say about this, which probably won't be much because I actually like the B-side of this, but anything negative that I say has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that it's instrumental. And I know I speak for you too, Ryan. I love instrumental music, and I know you do too, like whether it's surf music or uh, jazz or I love all kinds of instruments. I listen to lots of instrumental noise math rock stuff like a ton yeah and i love it all and i mean i i would wonder not just you know of course a lot of the intro stuff that you're mentioning before like the stuff from the 50s 60s 70s but a lot of the stuff i listen to now it's fair to say that black flag blazed a bit of that trail totally like uh, a band you and i both really love called removal for a canadian band oh yeah you know i'm not sure well I'm sure they would still have done it, but there are a few bands. Like, have you ever heard of a band called Stinking Liza Vetta? Yep. I would say they are directly inspired by Black Flag's instrumental stuff, or Gone, for sure. Who I love. I love those first two Gone records. I can't wait to get to them. Yeah, me too. Like, I like those better than this or the process of weeding out. To well, me, uh, to know, me, they're they're more structured. Like, the this, we'll see when we get to the process of weeding out, because even though I've heard that album a lot it's not super memorable for me. So I'm, you know, I can't really picture what it sounds like right now. Maybe those songs are a bit more structured to me. The B side of this sounds like a jam session. Yeah. I have a favorite song on the B side. Um, having listened to it a a bunch of times this week. Yeah. But before this week, you better save that for the ballot result. I will. I will. But before this week, I would not have been able to pick it out. The process of weeding out, I've listened to a lot in the last, you know, few years just because I had been reading up so many articles that mention it as an influence. And so I was like, well, you know, I got to check that one out again. No one mentions Family Man as an influence. No. But Gone, like I listened to those first two Gone records a fair amount. This I wouldn't have put on if I if we weren't doing this. Yeah, me either. So let's talk about the the spoken word tracks, which is kind of side one. So there's good notes here on the back that kind of tell where they were recorded. So Ethan James recorded Armageddon Men, which is at the end of side one. That's the the one song that uh, has the full band in it. Yep. It's kind of spoken word over an instrumental track. It's kind of cool to me. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Ryan. You would probably know this better than I do, but I'm pretty sure uh, Greg Ginn, Kira, and Bill Stevenson and Art all are each playing in a different time signature on that song. (laughs) I'm not kidding. Yeah, no, well, I'm not sure that I know better than you, but I will, there's someone that you and I know who is a, who is an actual musician and uh, I'm a failed musician, but who was a drummer in one of our bands who is a phenomenal drummer. And I remember I, and I was in a punk band with him in the nineties too. And I remember he had all the black flag tapes in his bedroom and he used to learn all the Bill Stevenson stuff. And he used to point to family man and he would go, I can't play a lot of the stuff on that record. It's the, the drumming's insane, man. Like yeah. 
It's yep. just insane. So Ethan James recorded Armageddon Man, uh, Long Lost Dog of It, and The Pups Are Dog in It. Those are two instrumentals on the B-side. And then Spot recorded Let Your Fingers Do the Walking, No Deposit, No Return, I Won't Stick Any of You, and Account for What. And the rest of the songs, I already mentioned where Family Man was recorded. Salt on a Slug was recorded live at Bebop Records in Reseda, California. That undoubtedly was at one of these Harvey Kubernick shows. Yeah. Radis Norvegicus was recorded in a shed. And I can only imagine that that, that is the shed that Henry made famous in Get in the Van. Mr. Ginn's study. Yes. Yeah, Tom Tricoli says... Uh, something is quoted in one of the books as saying, like, Henry made such a big deal out of that shed. He made it sound like a doghouse. It was Mr. Ginn's study. Yeah, full of books. I'm wondering if the Spot stuff and the Ethan James stuff wasn't tacked on to other recording sessions. Might have been, because I guess, you know, the Minutemen would have been recording with Ethan at Radio Tokyo, and, you know, Spot recorded with the Minutemen as a rebuttal to that as well. Especially the two Ethan James tracks, because to me, Long Lost Dog of It and The Pups Are Dog in It, the the first and last song on the B-side, are the least kind of structured. They really sound like just jams in the studio to me. Yeah, I agree. Let's talk about um, the cover art, because it's pretty out there. Uh, First of all, I mean, it says right off the bat, Family Man, a spoken word slash instrumental record. And so that is, I, I got to think that that's one of the first records maybe ever to say that. Yeah. Which is, um, you know, that would catch your attention. Certainly caught my attention when I bought it. But the cover is another Pettibone drawing, all, and it's in color. And it basically shows, it's got to be a father or a man. Looks like he's shot his family. Uh, a son looks like his wife looks like his daughter is still alive and he's got the handgun pointed at his his head so it looks like a murder suicide and it has the date november 23rd 1963 on it that's the day of the jfk assassination yeah and obvious like well i shouldn't say obviously you know when you look at a lot of pettibone artwork especially from back then it's going to be really shocking and there is lots of imagery of kennedy guns charles manson elvis all lots of americana and really starking sorry stark imagery and you know what makes this even more shocking though ryan what's that uh apparently raymond used likenesses of his nephew alex and niece janet for the (laughs) uh children yeah i read that too yeah, that is much more disturbing. You know, Pettibone stuff really had a bunch of phases over, you know, the decades. And I like all of his stuff for different reasons. But some of this earlier stuff, I don't know. And maybe it's because I'm an old geezer myself with kids and stuff. It's pretty hard to just, like, look at it and soak it in for a long period of time. Yeah, this one's, this is, this cover's pretty raunchy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, on the back cover, we, we kind of mentioned lots of detailed notes, and then there is the, I guess you call them the liner notes by Harvey Kubernick. My favorite quote in, in there is he says, "Black," or he's talking about Black Flag, they don't work the room when they play, they own it. <laughs> yeah, I think I have a, a very recent, like probably in the last 20 years, 
re-release of this on on vinyl i bought it on cd like i said at least twice maybe even three times and then i bought it at one point like used for this is still like you never see family man commanding high dollars it's always just 10 bucks used it's got thank yous too which you don't see i've never i don't think we've seen that on a black flag release maybe that's the freeway connection but it says thanks kcrw kxlu rick bebop guys which would be the bebop cafe where salt on a slug was recorded and the gins which that point's really driven home in all of the literature about black flag there would be no black flag if it wasn't for uh, the Gins. Yeah, the Gins clothed and fed them for years. What version do you have of this release? What do you mean? Like, do you have a vinyl, CD, cassette? I have the vinyl. Is it like uh, an original looking one, like an old one or kind of a new one? I don't know. I mean, I've had it for many years, so it's... Does it have anything on the spine? No. Because uh, around uh, back then they were still putting, you know, suggested retail prices on the spine, and mine does not have anything. Mine doesn't either, but it has runoff grooves. Yeah, mine does too, but why don't you hit me with yours? A-side, looking out from a tight corner. B-side, mirrors only create the illusion of less. Deep thoughts. Super deep. Is it time for the ballot result? Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing where you ended up on this one. <laughs> yeah, me too. Ballot result. I haven't listened to this for a long time. Probably, again, probably at least 10 years. It's probably safe to say that I'm... After listening to this a number of times this week, I'm probably never going to listen to the A-side again. Well, I have, to, I have to say something about the A-side. I think I've mentioned this a few times, but I somebody made me very early on when I first got into, a, into punk rock a compilation tape that had the entire A-side of this minus... Uh, Armageddon time? Yeah, minus that. And I listened to that tape a zillion times. Still to this day, I, I mean, I never listened to this. But when I put it on for the first time in probably over a decade to listen to it for this, I can still recite every word of the but Henry Rollins like side. Right, but do you like it? Uh, it hasn't aged well. I did like it then. It hasn't yeah. maybe aged well for me. It doesn't have the nostalgia factor that a lot of songs from back then have for me. But I was going to pick um, Let Your Fingers Do the Walking for the ballot result. But I listened to this again last night and... Uh, that's that's a no go. <laughs> but if I had to pick yeah. a favorite off of the Henry, out of the Henry stuff, it would be that one. Yeah, I'll say it again. I'm probably not going to listen to the A side of A side of this um, probably ever again. You know, forgive me, Henry. I do listen it, to a lot of Henry spoken word albums, though the later ones yeah, in particular, I, and I like them a lot. And I own a great number of his books as well. I have a fair amount of his books. I used to own a lot of his. I guess spoken word stuff from the '90s, kind of when he had his album covers where he was he looked like a like a skeleton in shorts, like Sweatbox or or whatever. Yeah, most and, of that era is kind of like is more like this. It's before he'd really found his uh, what he more like what he does now. Yeah, but what I will say though is for me it also did not age well, and if I compare it against like spoken word punk stuff that I listened to back then. The only stuff that I listened to of spoken word was either Henry or Jello Biafra. I'll still listen to Jello. Yeah. Me too. The Jello stuff holds up for sure. It's just hard not to compare the two. I listened to some of the stuff Jello put out on Alternative Tentacles too. Like I have a lot of that stuff, and I'm a fairly politically active and a left 
leaning guy. So I'll listen to like uh, Michael Parenti, for example, or like Noam Chomsky and that kind of stuff that Jello put out on Alternative Tentacles. I, I, I own a number of those and listen to them. That stuff just holds up better for me than Salt on a Slug, for example. Yeah. But I mean, if I if I had to pick a song for ballot result on this record, I would actually go with I won't stick any of it in you unless and until I can stick all of you into you. <laughs> you got yeah. you flubbed that one, but it's a it's a it's a what? tough one. Let me try it again. Wait, what do you mean into you? That's what you said. I won't stick any of you into you. You said something weird. <laughs> okay, let me try that again. I won't stick any of you unless and until I can stick all of you. That's, Exclamation point. That, yeah, that's the one I picked for a few reasons. Mainly, uh, Bill Stevenson's drumming is fucking crazy. insane. It's insane. Fucking crazy. Like, yeah. that guy does not get enough credit for being a maniac. Mostly because people know him from The Descendants and he's just, you know, holding down the beat. But the guy, A, is a songwriter, a, ta- a super talented one. And I have always loved his snare rolls. Like, he plays a lot of his roles or his fills on a snare, which I love. He does some complicated stuff in Descendants, nothing like this, but some of his stuff in All is very complex too. Yeah, well they do, They All is a band that does a lot of instrumental stuff and apparently was had talked about doing a, a an entire instrumental album at one point. No one would have bought that. I would have. Well, I mean, you know, of course I would have too, but yeah. no one else. <laughs> no, I don't think anybody really bought All albums, period, But which is a shame. Uh, it is a shame. I mean, we're not gonna we're not gonna get it. Maybe when we get into the Descendants a bit later on, but it's hard not when we talk about all for me to say like I really have a big big soft spot for a lot of all records. And Scott Reynolds in particular can sing anything. And those first records with Dave Smalley, uh, they stand up against Descendants records for me. Totally. But I mean, like I've always loved Bill Stevenson as a drummer. But on this album, and I mean, I've never really listened to it with kind of a more critical ear than I did in this past week. It's super jazzy. It's really impressive. Kira, she's doing what she was told to do, or which is lay down kind of the bedrock. But like you said, she's supposed to be, or she is locking in with Bill Stevenson, and he's all over the place. And she, she's like a metronome. Like, it's insane. It, it, yeah, it would be incredibly hard to play that, yeah. what, she, what she's playing, the repetitiveness. Yeah. And, I mean, she is all over the neck, too, with that repetitiveness. Oh, yeah, and she plays with her fingers, too, which I've always loved. And she had, like, severed or really injured her middle finger, right? I think so, yeah. At one, at one point, as she was just joining the band, and yeah. she couldn't take any time off. Yeah, you read a lot about her playing in incredible pain. But she was hell-bent on being a part of Black Flag's legacy, and she's a huge part of it for me. She's, oh, yeah. you know, this is the classic lineup for me. Yeah, And, well, and you, one of the I, best rhythm sections in punk rock, for sure. That I agree with. You've heard me say, though, that I really, for me, the, the two Black Flag bass players that I, I like the most are Chuck and Kira. I like Chuck mostly because of his, you know, his classic riffs and the sound of his P-bass. And I love Kira because she's just so solid with this rhythm section. I mean, the big thing for me, and why I wanted to pick that one as the ballot result, is Kira's great, Bill's great, Greg Ginn melts the fucking fretboard, <laughs> man. It's insane what that guy could do with a guitar strapped on. Yeah, 
I agree. I love it. All right, so I'm going to throw it over to you for what's coming up next, Brent. Well, Ryan, we've got the two albums that SST is probably, can I say, most famous for? I think it's fair to say most famous for, except perhaps maybe Damaged. Yeah, you're right. Damaged is up there for sure. Uh, we've got Husker Du's Zen Arcade, and we have a special guest on that episode, Paul Hilkoff. He runs the Husker Du database, which is just an amazing archive of Husker Du related material. And then for the Double Nickels on the Dime episode, Michael T. Fournier, who wrote uh, the 33 and a third book on Double Nickels on, on the Dime, which is a phenomenal book that everyone should read uh, who's a fan of that album because there's so many cool stories and amazing little insights into the the writing process and and so many little hidden secrets about what the songs are about and it's it's a really good book yeah and unlike family man i still regularly listen to zen arcade and double nickels and i can't wait to get into it yeah me too i love both of those albums all right thanks for tuning in everyone 